page 1105 of your pew Bible. Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he, taught, or, and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one with who knocks it will be opened. What father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Thus far our reading. Question and answer 120. We can read that together before the preaching of the Word. It's Lord's Day 46, page 560 of your Book of Praise. Question and answer 120. Why has Christ commanded us to address God as our Father? To awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence and trust toward God, which should be basic to our prayer. God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of him in faith then our fathers would refuse us earthly things. Thus far our catechism reading. Brothers and sisters, Vancaster, a pastor named Craig Groeschel once wrote a book titled The Christian Atheist. You may have seen it or, or read it in the past. And chapter 4 of this book is titled When You Believe in God But Not in Prayer. And Groeschel says in this chapter that many Christians, and I quote, just aren't sure our prayers will make a difference. We've tried praying before, he says, and nothing seemed to happen. 
After several failed attempts, praying seems at best ineffective and at worst a waste of time. The net result, he believes, is that many of us live as Christians, believe in Jesus Christ, go to church, maybe tithe, give money, but we effectively act as atheists in the area of prayer. We believe in Jesus, but not in prayer. Many Christians, I'm sure, I know, struggle with this. It's also something that sometimes I struggle with myself. You see, I understand that I need to pray. The Bible is clear on that point. But I struggle to understand and I struggle to grasp the concept that my prayers really matter. Why would God care about little me? And I think for a lot of us, this is compounded by the fact that it seems so often as if God doesn't really hear our prayers. And he certainly doesn't listen. Sometimes we pray for healing and God doesn't grant it. We pray for relief from something like poverty. We can't pay our bills. We pray for months on end maybe for such a a prayer. But after months... It just doesn't seem to let up. We still struggle to pay our bills. And so the good news for us, for those of us who struggle with prayer, is that this passage, Luke 11, is specifically meant to help answer this question. The question of, do our prayers really matter? This is the question that Jesus is getting at in this passage when he teaches his disciples to pray. In fact, the initial question at the beginning of the chapter, when his disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, in some ways implies that the disciples weren't really sure what praying was all about or what it was for. And so in this passage in Luke 11, what we'll see is that Jesus answers this question in two related ways. The first has to do with the fatherhood of God, And the second has to do with three arguments that Jesus gives after he gives the Lord's Prayer. And so our theme for this afternoon is God is our Father and that makes all the difference when we pray. And with this theme we'll begin to understand, hopefully, why prayer should matter to us. Every one of us. So let's start on the first point, the fatherhood of God. I'll start with a little bit of background on this concept. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And the first thing he does is he teaches his disciples to pray, starting with the word Father. Now you may think, that's nothing unusual, that's no big deal. But actually for Jesus to teach his disciples to call God Father is actually a bit unusual. It's a bit controversial, certainly for the Jews in Jesus' time. In the Old Testament and for many of the Jews in Jesus' time, God was called Yahweh which is usually translated in our Bibles as Lord. And God was also called by by many of the Jews, they used the term Lord. In fact, for many of the Jews in Jesus' time, they wouldn't even use God's name, Yahweh, given in in Exodus 3. They didn't dare. It was too holy. Most of the Jews in Jesus' time would only call God Lord. And when they read their Bible, 
their Old Testament Bible scrolls, when they saw Yahweh, they would say Lord instead. And so for Jesus says to his disciples, you know what? You can call God Father. That's unusual. God is rarely called a father in the Old Testament. And it's important to understand what this does, the implications of such a thing. I mean, think about it. There's a huge difference between the Lord-subject relationship and the father-child relationship. The Lord-subject relationship is a power relationship. The father-child relationship is primarily a love relationship, even though power is involved as well. And so Jesus is, in a sense, he's shifting the whole way we should, we, we should view God when he says, Father. It's not to say that in the Old Testament, God wasn't loving. That's not the point at all. It's what, it's what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting it now, specifically in the area of prayer. And I'll illustrate this a little bit so we can fully grasp some of the significance of this. I mean, let's illustrate this a little bit. Think about the good dads that we know. What does a good dad do? What's a good dad like? We know that a good dad cherishes his children as if they're the greatest thing in the world. Good dads shower their children with love, care, and attention, and they spend time with them. Good dads delight in our joy. They mourn with us when we mourn. When we fall off our bikes, a good dad comes and he helps us up. A good dad teaches us how to ride the bike. And maybe more significantly, good dads love their children so much that they're always willing to forgive their children. A repentant child of a good dad will always know that no matter what he does, his dad will take him back if he's repentant. But that's on one side. But a good dad also knows that love, his love for his children needs to be exercised with a degree of authority and responsibility which is exercised in careful discipline. A good dad knows that in order to best love his children, he has to teach them, he has to correct their faults. There are times when he can't give his children the things that they want. Right? The best dads combine their authority over their children with the love that they have with their children. And that love and authority are linked in relationship. A good dad wants relationship with his children. He wants to know them. He wants to talk to them. And in that way, he can love them and provide oversight. Now, why do I, why I spend so much time on this? What am I, where am I going with such an illustration? I think you already know. To some extent, the dads in this world image who God is to us. Except our sinful dads are far less than who our Father in heaven, who is perfect, is far better than our sinful dads and far more um, powerful and, and far more loving. Now, it's at this point, I, I have to admit, though, that some of you who are here today may not have had good dads. And so what I'm doing here is very dangerous. To take the dads of this world and then go to God it's very hard for certain people who didn't have a good father. I mean, this needs to be commented on. I read an article from someone who struggled with this, and he said this. He said, I had to, instead of looking at my dad and then back at God, I learned to look at God first. 
If I didn't start with God, he would always be the replica rather than the original. And this is a careful point that we have to make here. We need to take our vision of fatherhood from God to our dads. Even though our dads, by seeing our dads, it can help understand who God is as a father. The point is this. The point is that God is our father like our fathers and better. God is a perfect father. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants to know you. He wants to listen to you. He wants to talk to you. And where our fathers failed, God won't fail. He can't. And so with this in mind, we can return to the original question of the introduction. The question, do our prayers matter? And the way to answer that question, one way to answer that question is to say, do the conversations that a good dad has with his children matter? Do those conversations matter? And immediately we would say yes. Of course they do. And so the question then becomes, if the conversations a good dad has with his children, if those conversations matter, then why wouldn't our conversations with God, the heavenly father, the perfect father? You see, to some extent, this is a matter of faith. Do you believe that God, what God says God says he's your father. Do you believe that? And whether you believe that will affect how you pray. You see, if God is the perfectly loving father that Jesus says he is, the loving father that Jesus reflects, then how could our prayers not matter? Of course they would. You see, When my children talk to me, I generally listen as a father. I do. In fact, I have a variety of responses to them. If my children come to me for comfort, I pick them up and hold them in my arms. If they come to me for advice, then I offer advice to them. If they come to me and ask me for money, I may or may not give it to them. If they come to me and ask me for something that's bad for them, if they ask me if they can play with the scissors, I say no. It stands to reason that when we say the same things that our children say to us, and we say those things to God, it stands to reason that he would respond the same way. It stands to reason that he has our best interests at heart that he will give us whatever gifts are necessary to comfort us. It stands to reason also that he will deny us things that are bad for us, that we think we need and he knows we don't need. You see, the fatherhood of God changes the dynamic by which we think of prayer. Prayer, if if God is our father and we're his children, then prayer isn't some sort of dispassionate, cold, contractual relationship between us and God. God is our Father, then prayer is talking to the person who loves us more than we love ourselves. It's an interesting point. You see, Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor theologian, makes a comment. He says, you know, what is legalistic Christianity anyway? What is, what is it when we say someone is a legalist? What is that? And he says, well, legalism essentially is abstracting the ideas about God from God himself and who he is. 
Legalism is when Christians forget about the relationship that they have with God and they just think about the ideas about God or the benefits that they might receive from him. And interestingly, the failure to pray is one of the first effects of legalism. If you don't believe in prayer much, you might have a more legalistic heart than you think. You might have reduced your Christianity to just a certain set of practices and ideas. But if Christianity is about a relationship that you have with God, a rich, full relationship, every bit like the relationship a good child has with a father, Christianity isn't just a set of ideas, is it? It's a powerful thing, full of love and care and compassion. And if that's who our God is and if that's who we think of him, then that changes prayer, doesn't it? Prayer becomes this sort of essential, joyful act. And so this is the first point we want to make about prayer. It's the fatherhood of God, which provides the whole structure by which we think about prayer. This is point one. And point two, we're going to, Jesus is going to continue his argument with three different arguments. Okay? Three different ways of underlining the importance and the power of prayer. Jesus, what we'll see is that Jesus is going to give us, in verses 5 through 13, he gives us a parable in the first place, principles, and a proverb. And he does three things, and the three things say the same thing. So let's go forward and take a look. We'll start with the parable, which begins at verse 5. We'll read that together. Verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So this is a parable about, you can imagine what's happening here in your mind. Someone comes from a long journey, they comes to a friend's house in the middle of the night. Now, in the Middle East, you have to know that if someone comes to your house and you host them in your house, you must provide them food, hospitality, and drink. It's nearly sacred in the Middle East to do so. And so in the parable, a friend comes to the, the other friend's house at midnight. The friend is obligated. He must offer this friend food and drink. But he has none. So what does he do? This is the next verse. His, his friend, verse 6, a friend of mine has arrived on a journey. Uh, sorry, no, this is verse 6. So the friend arrives at the house, he goes to his neighbor's house, he asks his neighbor, knocks on his door and says, I need bread, I need bread, are you going to get out of bed and give me bread? Now, what does the neighbor do? The neighbor says the predictable thing. In verse 7, his neighbor, and he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed, I cannot give it up and give you anything. The neighbor doesn't want to help. It's midnight. He's in bed with his kids. You don't want to wake up your kids at midnight by getting out of bed. But here's where Jesus puts a twist on the parable. It says something unusual. I tell you, Jesus says, even though he won't get up and give anything because he is his friend, verse 8, yet because of his impudence or his shameless boldness, His friend will rise and give him whatever he needs. 
somewhat unusual principle, isn't it? The friend goes to the friend's house. He asks for something at midnight. And Jesus says, you know what? That neighbor will probably get up and give him what he needs. He'll probably get up and give him the bread. Why? And what's the point of Jesus saying this? Now note carefully here. The lesson of this parable is not that the friend had to be persistent in prayer or persistent in asking. There's no indication that the friend is persistent. The lesson here in this parable is that the neighbor got out of bed and gave the man the bread just because the man asked. Even though the request is improper, shameless, costly, and at midnight, generally speaking, an evil or a human being in this world will still get up and give him the bread. And Jesus is making a point here. Jesus is saying that even if people in those situations get out of bed at midnight and give their neighbor bread, even if so, how much more then would a loving Father in heaven listen to the requests of his people here on earth? How much more then would a loving Father in heaven respond to people who pray to him? If even human beings get up at midnight and give bread, why would we think that a Father in heaven doesn't listen? This is the point. And the parable is then followed by a principle in verses 9 and 10, a striking principle, if you read. And I'll read that to you. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Asking, seeking, and knocking. Now, this illustrates a few things about prayer. In the first place, this asking, seeking, and knocking illustrates that we need to ask God for things. And we should ask with the expectation of receiving. If we ask for good things in faith, we should expect to receive. Now, you might say at this point, yes, of course, of course, yes. But isn't this limited by the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done. God won't give us things that go against his perfect will. And yes, that would be correct. But the second petition shouldn't discourage us. This is still a mighty promise from Jesus Christ. He says that if you ask, you should expect to receive. The promise is that God will give you things that are according to his will. You've got to think, that is no small thing. That is not an insignificant fact. And it's, here, I have a personal example here on this one that might reorientate things a little bit. Here's a personal example. A few months ago, um, I started to pray for my neighbors in my neighborhood. And one day, I, on a Wednesday afternoon, I prayed for my neighbor directly beside me, Paul. Now, Paul has a wife, and she's been in, the, in a mental institution for some time, for a couple of years. And finally, after a couple of years, his wife had come home, and had been home for about a week. 
And in my prayer on Wednesday, I asked God, I said, you know, if there's anything that we can help, Lord, show us the way. It seemed like they were having a hard time. And sure enough, Thursday afternoon, a minute after I got home from school, who's at my door? It's my neighbor, Paul. And he says, hey, can you come help me? And I had to go over to his house and help him. And his wife had fallen out of bed, and she was incapable of getting back into bed. And we had to spend half an hour putting her back in bed. The point that I'm making with this, with this situation is, if you ask for something that God clearly wants, watch out. He'll probably answer it. He will answer it if he's your father. God wanted a witness to the neighbor, my neighbor. And so he provided a way to make it happen. These are the sort of things that Jesus is talking about when he says, ask and you shall receive. And so that's the first thing. The second thing is that we learn that prayer is also seeking God. Seek and you shall find. That means that prayer is the way in which we find God. The, way we, the place we go to be with him. And the most remarkable fact about this is that this is a promise again. God wants to be found. He wants to be found in prayer. Because he's your father, he wants to spend time with you. So when you seek him, he will be found. He won't be far away. He won't ignore you. This is a remarkable thing. Especially if maybe some of you are here today and maybe you don't know Jesus yet. Jesus is not your Savior. If that's you, this promise is particularly for you too. People who reach out for God and who seek him out and their hearts, they will find him. That's what this says, and it's for real. And in fact, Jesus highlights that at the end of the chapter, or sorry, in verse 13. And Jesus says later, he said it, after he, this proverb, he says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? If you seek the Holy Spirit, it will be found. He will be found. In the third place, prayer is knocking. This is a way of saying that our prayers should be persistent and somewhat urgent. Right? We knock on a door when we want to go in the door when we need to go in the door. Knocking is an increase in intensity. We're not just calling to God, we're urgently calling to him. Interestingly, uh, Augustine once said in a letter to a, a famous woman in Roman times, he said, you know, the first principle of prayer in his view was that we must account ourselves desolate in this world. It's another way of saying the first principle of prayer is that we, don't, we know that nothing in this world can give us what we truly need. This world doesn't have what we need, and we know it. And so Augustine said, if you know that this world cannot give you what you truly need, then you go to prayer, and, and you ask God for things with a sense of urgency. You need what God has to give to you. You must have it. God must give you what you need. If you ask God for faith, for example, or for the ability to forgive, or for the ability to love, only God can give you that. If you think that something else in this world can give you that, then you're not really going to pray hard for it, are you? 
But if you know that only God can grant such things, you are going to pray, you're going to knock with urgency. And so one last thing now on asking, seeking, and knocking. The fourth thing I could say, asking, seeking, and knocking in the Greek grammar here is continual. Continuous or continual. The way it's written is our lives are an entire sequence of asking, seeking, and knocking. Asking, seeking, and knocking. It's just a continual thing. It's not meant to stop. In fact, in many ways, this is the description of a Christian's heart in this life. A Christian's heart is one that asks, seeks, and knocks in prayer to the Lord and to the Father. So this is the, the principle. Now Jesus follows the parable and the principle with two proverbial sayings in verses 11 and 12 before he finishes. Now we can read that again as well. Verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, that's us, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now with this proverb, Jesus gives a simple argument. Right? It's a lesser to greater argument. If fathers on this earth, who are evil human beings, give good gifts to their children, even the, I mean, even the worst of fathers in this world still give good gifts, don't they? If that's the truth, then why would we think that the Heavenly Father wouldn't do the same? And the argument can go backwards too. right? If earthly fathers do not give their children scorpions, why do we so often think that God does? That God gives us scorpions? You see, we often do think this. We often blame God for the suffering that we experience. We think that it's God's fault that we experience bad things in this world. And Jesus' proverb here shows that that's not quite true. That doesn't make sense. It's true to say, yes, that God allows us to experience suffering, yes. But when we blame God for suffering, we actually forget something, don't we? We forget Who causes suffering? Whose fault is it that we suffer? Is it God's fault that I suffer in this world? No. God is not the cause or the sender of suffering. We are. Suffering is our fault. Human beings disobeyed God and and, and therefore sin entered the world. The original cause of suffering is human. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember, there was no pain and suffering. There was food for everyone in abundance. Nobody starved to death. But we ruined it. We, as in Eve and Adam, ate the apple. We rebelled. That's why suffering exists in the world. And you see, God's role in all of this is to send an ultimate answer to suffering. God the Father loves us so much that he sent a solution for sin. He's going to deal with sin. He's just not quite done yet. Or we could say he is done yet, but the effects, he's finished with sin, the cross is final, 
but we're still living in sin until the world reaches its end. You see, God the Father sent his son to die for us so that we would never have to experience the bite and the stings of scorpions ever again. That's God's solution to suffering in this world. Yes, we suffer now in the present, but it's only temporary. It's going to be over. It's going to end. That's what God's doing. And in fact, you would, I would imagine that God actually relieves more suffering from our lives than we realize. By sending Jesus, suffering will be dealt with once and for all. Jesus Christ, in fact, is the greatest gift our Father ever gave us. He's the very substance of the word gift, isn't he? And not only did Jesus save us, but because of him, we're reconciled to the Father in heaven in such a way that we can now talk to the Father one-on-one in prayer. It's remarkable. And Jesus, after reconciling us at the cross, he rose into heaven to stand at the right hand of God, and he possesses the same flesh and blood that you and I did. He suffered, he was tempted, just like you and I. And now he stands beside the Lord, and what is he doing in heaven right now? It's not only that we have a father, you see, the son who possesses the same blood as us, he's standing in heaven, and he's taking your prayers And he's interceding for us. He's bringing our prayers to the Father. He's talking them up, in a sense. He's taking our prayers to the Father, and he's saying, Father, listen. And when the Father listens to us, and when the Son listens to us and intercedes for us, they send the Holy Spirit to us, as it says in our text. And the Holy Spirit builds us up in our souls in such a way that we love the Lord And we respond in praise and we worship and we trust. And that's what's happening in prayer. That's the dynamic that's going on. And to finish, I want to go to Revelation 8 verse 4. Revelation 8 verse 4, we get a magnificent vision. Describes an angel standing in heaven. And this angel is offering incense. And John tells us what this incense is. This angel standing in the throne room of God is holding incense. And what is the incense? It says in verse 4, The smoke of the incense... With the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. This vision that we see in Revelation is a vision of what's happening to our prayers in heaven. According to John, as he's seen it from God, our prayers rise into the throne room of heaven like incense. And if that's not remarkable enough, the most remarkable thing happens next. In verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so could we say then, after reading this verse, 
that our prayers rise into the throne room of God and the response from God is to throw them down to earth with thunder and lightning shaking this earth. It's not just that our prayers go there and just sit in heaven, but God responds with might and with power. Our prayers are hurled back to earth with power. And so we can go back to the beginning, the first question of this sermon. Do our prayers matter? Is prayer worth it? Well, if God is our Father, how could it not be? How could our prayers not matter? Of course they do. If the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth loves us so much that he would send Jesus Christ to earth, would he not therefore also listen to our pleadings and to our cries of help? If even sinful men answer neighbors beating on their doors at night, if even sinful fathers give their children good gifts, then why would we think our father wouldn't? And so, yes, we should ask, we should seek, and we should knock every day continually. Because God the Father loves us and he's listening and our prayers are entering his throne room as we speak. And when he answers our prayers, he hurls down thunder from heaven. Our Father listens to us. He won't give us whatever we want because that would be bad for us. But he does give us what he knows is good for us and good for him. And we have to trust that that is indeed who he is and what he is doing. And with such a loving father, how could we not? Amen.